Welcome to the latest edition of Lakeshore Museum Center's podcast. Today we're going to be talking to former board member and somebody who's been interested in local history for years, Gary Olson, and he's going to talk about his research about the connection of Muskegon Swindlers, Queen Victoria's Gold, and the Scotland Yard, and how they all have a Muskegon connection. Welcome, Gary. Oh, thank you. So can you tell us where your research started and how you got interested in and who are these players that maybe swindled Queen Victoria's gold? Well, for a number of years, I've been a member of the Muskegon History Club, which actually dates back to before 1900 and uh, has always had 16 members and it continues to have 16 members today. And we write two papers a year. One is on our topic of the year and the second can be on anything we want it to be. So I decided to write a paper on, and present on the history of Norton Township. And in that, in that paper, I discovered these two brothers, name of George and Austin Bidwell, with a connection to uh, Muskegon, that had uh, forged or swindled the Bank of England out of nearly $5 million, which in today's dollars would be equivalent of about $100 million. And uh, the story intrigued me. I found a couple references in the, the Hackley Library, and I've just continued to, to kind of explore those references and uh, do more research on my own. Let's start out with these two brothers, George and Austin Bidwell. Who were they? Well, George and Austin Bidwell were born in, on the East Coast. George was the oldest. He was born in 1833 in, in New York. Uh, he had an older sister who was a key part of this story, name of Harriet Bidwell. Her married name was Mott. She was born in 1835. And then 10 years later comes Austin Bidwell. And he was, he was born in Michigan. I'm not exactly sure where, but um, I continue to explore that. So when they came to Michigan, what was the reason? George, Harriet, Austin, and I believe there was another brother, John, came with her family to Michigan from the East Coast. Uh, the father was a kind of a part-time uh, minister, and he also ran a boarding house, and uh, he became disillusioned with that, and he brought his family to Grand Rapids in 1849. And they started a candy business. They referred to it in the, uh, in the articles as a confectionery business, but I'm sure that was just another name for candy from that far back. And uh, the business became quite successful. In 1850, they were listed in the Toledo, Ohio census. I'm not exactly sure why they went back to Toledo from, uh, from Grand Rapids, but they did continue in the 1850s uh, in their business in Grand Rapids, which became quite successful. About in the middle of that time period, George especially became kind of bored with uh, this simple business. So he moved to New York, and there he became part of a grocery business in New York, and he also had some experience on Wall Street, and uh, that is where he learned how to, um, he kind of learned the ins and outs of trading and that kind of thing. Uh, in 1858, George married a Martha Brewer in Hartford, Connecticut, and they are listed in the 1860 New York Census. In 1869, George came to Muskegon. Well, actually, he didn't come to Muskegon. John and George's wife came to Muskegon and purchased a plot of land of approximately 25 acres in his name. And that is uh, a central part of the story is that, is that property uh, in Norton Township. 
So how is there a connection then between George and his brothers and England? Well, after he purchased the property, he came up with this plan with his brother to uh, defraud banks using letters of exchange or bills of exchange, which were like an early IOU or a check. The difference between a bill of exchange and a check was that a bill of exchange was typically like an IOU from a business to a bank or a bank to a business, and that could be bought and sold at a discount as opposed to um, a check, which would typically come due like the next day or within a couple days. So these bills of exchange were due in approximately 60 to 90 days. And so they came up with this plan to defraud banks of money by creating forged bills of exchange that would be due in 60, approximately 60 days in this case, and uh, with the idea that they would get all this money and they would be out of the country before any of those bills became due or those letters or bills became due. And, you know, and then the, the fraud would be discovered. This seems like a pretty elaborate um, scheme. Was it just the two brothers involved? No, there were two more men, at least two more men. One was Edward Noyes, and I think the other man's name was MacDonald. And between the four of them, in the period of 1872 to early 1873, they had um, set up shop in England and created this, uh, these forged bills, which were very realistic and they turned them in. And at one point, they were collecting over $50,000 a day. And what they would do is they would take the paper and trade it at a discount for gold. This seems like a pretty flawless scheme. So what happened? Well, George was one of the main forgers. And what he did was one of the bills, he accidentally or missed putting a date, a due date on the bill. And when it was taken to the bank, bank teller, the bank official at the time, uh, realized that something was wrong. Nobody leaves a due date off a, off a bill of exchange. So he reported it to his superiors and uh, the game was up. They realized then as they looked back over all the other bills that uh, they had been, uh, the Bank of England, uh, considered to be one of the most safest institutions in the world, uh, had in fact lost a million, over a million pounds. So did they make it out of the country? Well, some did and some didn't. Uh, I think Noyes was the one that actually presented the bill, so he was arrested on the spot. I'm um, not sure exactly where McDonald was, but he took off. Uh, George Bidwell, he headed for Wales and Scotland and kind of led Scotland Yard across uh, Great Britain at the time. And um, Austin, he said he was going to go to France, but he went to Cuba and uh, he was actually captured in Cuba. So then what happened after they were captured? Well, they were captured and obviously thrown in jail or prison. Uh, then they had a, uh, there was a trial and uh, the British newspapers, I have a number of copies of the British newspapers which discussed the trial and they were found, all found guilty after approximately 15 minutes according to uh, one article that I read and they were sentenced to life in prison. Now, were they sentenced to life, they were going to be held overseas in England, or were they going to be shipped home? No, they were held in England at, at a couple different notorious prisons and um, sentenced to life. So uh, 
there was really no chance at this point that they were ever going to leave prison. So did they die in prison? No. What happened was their sister, and I'm not exactly sure why George's wife didn't get really involved in this, but their sister began to campaign for their release because, uh, you know, even though they had stolen a million pounds, approximately $5 million, life in prison for something like that seemed pretty harsh even to most people at that time. And so what she did, and she lived in Muskegon at the time, uh, she began to gather uh, letters and support to have the brothers released. I read one report where she had a, a letter from a church here in Muskegon that uh, was carried uh, to England by Harriet Mott for the release of the brothers. And in 1887, due to health concerns and uh, after many times being denied, George was released. He was immediately put on a ship and sent back home to the States under what was referred to as a ticket of leave. And many articles that I've read kept referring to George Bidwell, a ticket of leave man, and I couldn't exactly figure out what that was, so I began to research that. And a ticket of leave was uh, similar to a parole back in the 19th century, where the ticket of leave man or ticket of leave person had to carry this document with them all the time, indicating that they had been released from prison, there were conditions on their release, and if they uh, broke those, any of those conditions, they could be rearrested and thrown back in prison. So he came back to the States. He lived in New York for a time. He was actually rearrested in New York uh, because they didn't, uh, they didn't realize that he was, had this document with him. And after some confusion over his rearrest, he was released. And uh, George then was a, a free man, but he was on this parole or this ticket of leave. Austin continued to be in prison after that. Did they ever come back to Muskegon? Well, after his release in 1887, George began to write a book to raise money to help get his brother released. In 1890, he came back to Muskegon and Grand Rapids. Uh, I have newspaper articles that he gave lectures here at Muskegon and in Grand Rapids telling of his antics and how people shouldn't lead a life of crime. Also, one of the reasons he gave for coming to Muskegon in 1890 was to review business interests and look at his property. What did he bring back with him is one of the questions in 1890. And what did he actually do with that property in 1890? Eventually it was sold, but uh, at this point I, I'm not exactly sure what, what happened there. But he did come back to Muskegon in 1890, actually it was in May, and um, he gave lectures. Was he able to get his brother released? What he did was, he, he because of his, some of his restrictions on his travel to England, he did assist, and I'm not exactly sure how this all worked, because he was not supposed to go back to England, he did assist his sister Harriet Amat in campaigning for his brother's release, and he was released in 1892. So he, yes, he was successful in getting his, his brother released. Uh, his sister also carried with her letters from um, from many different famous people to campaign for the brothers' release. One of them was Mark Twain, another was Harriet Beecher Stowe. It would be very interesting to locate those letters and see exactly what they did say. The Queen, the Queen of England, Victoria at the time, would be the only one who could actually sign 
a bill or a release allowing uh, Austin Bidwell out of prison. And finally, as I said before, in 1892, uh, she did agree and sign and Austin Bidwell was released. So now they were both uh, free men and they came back to the United States. After 1890, I'm not able to connect them to Muskegon after that, but I'm still working at that because they did own the property. The sister lived on the property. So continuing to look at that. So now here's the real question. Did the bank ever recoup its money that the Bidwell brothers stole? Well, that's where the story gets quite intriguing. When Austin was caught in Havana, he had some money with him. And also when George was captured, there was some money there. But the bulk of the money was, and the gold was never found. William Pinkerton was a key part of uh, investigating this along with Scotland Yard, continued to follow and harass the brothers when they came back to the United States. So you have to ask yourself, well, if all the money had been recovered, why was Pinkerton's and Scotland Yard continued to follow them around? Did the brothers ever buy elaborate houses anywhere or live their life in luxury now that they were out? No, actually that is why uh, George wrote the book to raise money and uh, that's exactly why he gave lectures to raise money because they really did live in poverty after that. So then, you know, another question you have to ask is if they had all this money and they buried it someplace, why did they do that? My conclusion in that at this point is that because they were released early because they had been sentenced to life in prison and they were um, subject to being rearrested and re-imprisoned, perhaps they thought that if they did begin to pull the money out of the ground or wherever they put it, they would be discovered, rearrested, and thrown back in prison because their time in prison really um, destroyed their health. They were never very healthy people after that. And um, so they had a very, very difficult life after they got out of prison. How does the story end for the Bidwell brothers then? Story ends in 1899 in Butte, Montana. I have no idea why they left and went to Butte, Montana in early 1899. They were only there a few weeks. Uh, perhaps they took some of the money with them or perhaps they left it wherever it was, and they, they lived in a boarding house in Butte, Montana, and uh, where uh, Austin died a few weeks after they had arrived there, and then about two weeks later, uh, George had died. And um, there are some stories that indicate from the, from the coroners or from the people that investigated out there that Austin died of an illness, and uh, George was very distraught over the death of his brother because he felt responsible for him. And uh, there is some evidence that indicate that he may have taken his own life in Montana. So is there any rumors about the importance of the family living here and their farm here in terms of the gold? This seems like a really good mystery. Uh, there are. Because the gold was never found, because George came back here in 1890 to look after some business interest in his property, it's not unlikely, let's put it that way, that he may have transported some of the gold with him and buried it either on his property or near his property so perhaps he could come back at some time later, not realizing that 
when they went to Montana, they would die a very short period of time. Some of the rumors are that some of the gold was found in Norton Township and that it was buried in a very specific place. Some property owners around have heard of these rumors. When I went to the uh, County Register of Deeds office to look for the deed of this property, one of the questions some of the people asked me there, are you looking for the gold? So there are rumors around and that some of the money was found and some of the money was found here locally. So who knows, it could be here, it could be in Montana, it could be in Chicago where they were buried, it could be back out east, or it could perhaps been stolen by somebody that had arrested him and then taken it. So we don't really know where it is, but most of it was never located. Thank you for that amazing story, Gary. 